and the truth to any of the audiences, I did not do a baseball workshop with Ken Revisa in the middle of my master's studies. I was his chauffeur. <laughs> I was his chauffeur. Hello and welcome to another episode of 80% Mental with me, Dr. Pete Olushaga. This is a really special episode of the podcast because I'm live in Fort Worth, Texas at the Association of Applied Sports Psychology Annual Conference. Well, sort of. I'm not actually there anymore. I've come home. But I was there a few days ago and I thought it would be a really good opportunity to speak to some of the leading minds in the field some of the up-and-coming talents, and just to explore a little bit more about what's going on right now in the world of sport and performance psychology. What's some of the latest research findings? What are some of the latest approaches to working with athletes and performers? So this episode is basically me wandering around the conference, annoying people with a microphone. So thank you to everyone who indulged me, and I hope that it makes a really interesting episode. Don't forget to give us a follow on Instagram at 80% Mental or on Twitter at EPM Podcast. And you can also check out the website 80%Mental.com where you can subscribe so that you don't miss any future award-winning episodes. That's right, I said award-winning. Part of the reason that I was at the conference was to pick up the ASP Award for Distinguished Public Communication, Awareness and Outreach basically an award for this very podcast, which is all about bringing sport and performance psychology to a wider audience. So please do like, share, subscribe, all that good social media stuff. And once again, just a huge thank you to everybody who has been a guest on the podcast or supported the podcast in some way. I can't thank you enough for that. Anyway, this is enough of me talking. On with this episode where you'll hear from some of the great minds of sport and performance psychology with a little bit of background noise too. Okay, so I'm, I'm here with the one and only Bob Weinberg uh, at the ASP conference in Fort Worth. Bob, how are you enjoying the conference so far? Pretty good. Uh, I enjoy mostly seeing uh, old friends and colleagues. Uh, uh, I am retired and I always try to see some of the keynotes. Um, so uh, it's been nice. I enjoy it. Yeah. And uh, obviously we're down in Texas, in Fort Worth. What do you think of that as a location? Um, I think it's a nice location. I mean, it's not a big city, but it's big enough. I don't know if people... I mean, this used to be... It's called Cowtown, so it has an old sort of uh, flavor that way uh, compared to Dallas, which is kind of new and glitzy. Yeah. Well, I don't know if people might be able to hear there's like country music being playing in the hotel the whole time I've been here. So. That's, uh, that would be Texas. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in terms of the conference then, what have you, uh, what have you enjoyed? Has anything jumped out at you so far as being interesting or anything that you've taken from it? Well, um, being a tennis guy, John Isner was uh, keynote this, uh, this morning mm -hmm. and uh, he was very thoughtful, he was very forthcoming and there was a lot of psychology in it. Uh, sometimes they bring in these athletes and they tell their story and it's inspiring and they're great athletes but it has nothing to do with psychology, sports psychology. Yeah. His really did. The question's really good. Uh, the people lined up. I was one of them lined up to try to uh, ask him a question. Usually I don't do that. But there were like 15 people ahead of me. Everyone ran up to, yeah. to ask a question. So it was nice to have a keynote from the athletic world but really talk about sports psychology, about the, the, the mental 
uh, tools that he uses, how he dealt with failure, you know, and all those kind of things that we do when we work with athletes. Yeah, I liked how he um, how he talked about perspective a lot as well, and uh, being more than just an athlete. He, kind of yes, yeah. In fact, he he, he says the same thing. I'm I'm work I'm working a lot of tennis players, young, 10, 11, 12, 13, whatever. It's always process over outcome. Yeah. Process over outcome. You know. Because I asked the kid, what do you like about tennis? I like winning. <laughs> like, okay, you know, but it doesn't really matter what your rank is when you're 12. Or you, think, you think Rafael Nadal or Roger Federer or Serena Williams cared what rank they were when they were 13? No, you only care that they got better and they were great players. Mm-hmm. You want to get better. You know, you want to be great at 18. You're only 12, 11. So it's trying to get them to really buy into that yeah. process. If, and if it was great, if I go out there and I and I have good process, I hit the ball well, and I lose, I have a good night's sleep. But if I go out there and I'm tentative and I'm anxious, you know, and I'm afraid to lose, I don't get any sleep. So, Bob Weinberg, every every undergraduate student will know who you are. Every undergraduate I'm student. I'm afraid that's true. In fact, one got me in the hallway. You know, <laughs> I said, "How'd you know who I was?" Well, I saw your name, you know, and. Uh, I use your text and so on. So yeah, um, if you ask me and Dan, Dan Gould, of course, is the yeah. co-author of our text, what's our biggest contribution to the field? And we've both done a lot of things, you know, writing uh, individual articles, presentations, all that. President of associations, easily we say, is the book. Yeah. Because as you alluded to, most people in this field have read the book. As an undergraduate or graduate of some time, we sold over a quarter of a million of them, which is a lot new ones, which is a lot for a, a niche field like us. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when we give a presentation, there are you know 100 people in the audience. You know, here is a few hundred thousand have read the book. You know, and they, they got their start in sports psychology, and uh, so to us, that's our biggest contribution, no doubt. So I, I think I think it's fair to say that you would be on the Mount Rushmore of sports psychologists. <laughs> You're being very, very kind. <laughs> who, who would you put up next to you? Who would be the other three? Oh. And, and maybe why? That's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> that's not a fair question, because whoever I put up there, I'm going to get crap from someone, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and again, it also, do you mean like in the present time? Like, for example, I think early on, in sports psychology, this is like early 70s, well, 50 years ago, was sort of getting started. Rhina Martins, mm-hmm. uh, who also um, uh, was the pres- initial president of Human Kinetics, was, you know, very, very, uh, would be one of my top people up there. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, now, um, it, it's hard to, in my, I would put Dan, Dan Gould, my, my co-author, as one of those, those people. Uh, and it's really hard to say, um, so I'm not. I'm, I'm going to mention those couple. You know, from way back, I think Ryan Martins and I think Dan today, because uh, they they have really impacted the field in many different ways. Uh, some, you know, you look at service, you look at teaching, you look at research, you look at uh, outreach. You know, they, they all. You know, a lot of people are great at one thing. They're a great yeah. researcher. Maybe a great teacher. Maybe you know, uh, maybe great in service as a journal editor. But they were great in everything. So I mean, that leaves one spot. Are, are, you, are you sure? Are you sure there's no one else that you want to I, give that, that three, spot isn't to? Isn't three uh, <laughs> enough? Um, I don't. I, it's hard to think. I'm trying to think of, of who I would uh, think of now. Uh, 
you know, also it's like depends. You know, are, are you talking about someone who's more it's like you? You take a look at like Ken Revisit as an applied person. Mm. As an applied person, I think he's up there. Uh, but but as a researcher, no. You know, but to someone, you know, I'm trying to think of someone who would be really good across all all the areas. And it's, you know, I'm having a hard time actually coming up with that that one person. Well, we, uh, we, we can put Ken up there for now. <laughs> we can we can you can always change your mind later. Yeah. Um, so obviously you've been at this a long time, uh, and I just wonder, as a sort of final question, what are some of the biggest lessons that maybe you've learned as a practitioner, um, given all of the, the work that you've done with the athletes that you've serviced over the years? As a practitioner in particular? Yeah. Number one, I think that what you have to do is develop trust with your athletes. They have to trust you. You know, which, which means that you know you have to, you know, call, you know, call when you're supposed to call, be there when you're supposed to be there, you know, and and really listen to them, and really feel that they're the only one in the room, you know. So I really think that you know you have to build that kind of trust. Second, I think that you know problems, a lot of problems, you know, we talk about sports psychology, but most problems are, are multimodal or interdisciplinary, you know. It may involve, some, you know, like why are you, why did you perform poorly and stuff? Well, maybe you're, you're not hydrating. Maybe you don't get enough sleep. Mm. You know, it's not always a, a sports psych uh, intervention. That's all the person needs. So I think also, the, you know, the interdisciplinary parts of things. You know, I, I think we get a big picture of who this individual athlete is, and not just, you know, what's inside their head. I think a lot of times we stay there, and that's all, and we forget about that the head is attached to the body, you know, and we got to need, need those kind of things. Awesome. Well, Bob, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I appreciate that, except the questions, some of the questions you asked put me on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you very much, Pete. My name is Stephanie Maurice, and I work at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Okay, so Stephanie, um, interested in your poster here, your research on uh, use of debriefing. Yes. applied work with applied sports psychologists. Can you tell me, first of all, what debriefing is in this context? Absolutely. So debriefing is really one of the critical parts of our applied work where at the end of a session you've implemented a team building activity and you really want to help them connect the dots and see what was the intention behind this activity, this fun game that we played. What were the skills that we developed? Was it communication? Was it um, group cohesion? And so how can we transfer what we just learned about each other in our session to the field, the court, whatever the sport might be? So really just reflecting on that learning process. Okay, so you're working with athletes, you're implementing some sort of uh, education, sports psychology, and then it's kind of the debrief is, okay, well, what did we actually learn here? How can we apply it? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. So what did you find in your in your research then? What, what was your research about? So we were really trying to figure out how do people learn how to debrief? Because it's something that doesn't show up in our textbooks for our classes. It is talked about a lot as something that's really important for us to do. And a lot of people will say it's one of the more important pieces, right? It doesn't matter what kind of activity you did, it's how you debrief that activity. Mm -hmm. And so we were really curious 
we never in our programs had any sort of official, here's what debriefing is. It was like you watch somebody do it and hope that they're doing it right. Yeah. And so we're just trying to figure out, are people learning this and where are people learning this? And a lot of people in our study took classes in counseling programs. And that's actually where most people are getting their training on how to debrief is through counseling and clinical courses more so than sports site classes. Right. Um, but we also learned that people really want more formal training on it and think that things like conferences, having workshops where people can actually get more training and experience on debriefing, practice with it would be something that's super helpful. So people are hungry for more yeah. education. Okay. So, so given that the debrief is such an important part of working as a, as a practitioner, as an applied psychologist, what tips or uh, advice have you got for people if they want to learn how to do it effectively? Yeah, so I think consulting with other people in the field has been something that a lot of people have addressed, that they're checking in with others to um, kind of consult about their consulting, if you will, right? We all go through supervision and mentorship, and we learn one specific way, usually, from that supervisor. Yeah, yeah. And part of what we asked people in the study was, do you think your approach is similar to other people in the field? And a lot of people were like, that's a great question. I don't really know, <laughs> but I hope so. Yeah. Um, and so I think just taking the moment to think about, do you feel like your athletes are getting the message that you're trying to send them? When you check back in, are the dots getting connected? Um, reflecting on, okay, what went well today? What can I do better? Like, was the message missed, right? And so um, reaching out to peers, I think, and just talking about debriefing your own debriefs, right? And um, we think even doing your own debriefing as a professional is important as well. So whether that's with a mentor or a peer, because we hold a lot of stuff in the work that we do too. So it's important for us to debrief and process our own work. Okay. All right, Stephanie, thank you so much for talking yeah. to me. Thank you. So my name is Andrew Augustus. I go by Chip. I'm originally from Louisville, Kentucky. But I'm a PhD candidate at West Virginia University. So your your poster is exploring, or your research is exploring connections between mindfulness and thriving uh, in adolescent athletes. Can you tell me a little bit about what thriving actually is? Yeah. So I'm really interested in not looking at the deficit side of mental health, right? But looking at the positive side, so well-being. So thriving is a pretty complicated construct that really, if you got it down to a sentence. Uh, encompasses positive well-being and performance. Right? It's often accompanied with higher levels of vitality and a sense of learning or progressing in what you're doing. Uh, and so it really struck my mind right as soon as I ran, I think Daniel Brown, some of his articles about it, uh, because how to get a coach to buy into things, if we can talk not just about well-being, yeah. obviously we want to help that, but that performance side, now you're going to have the coaches here for sure. Uh -huh. And so I thought it was just a really awesome construct that could collectively accomplish a lot. Okay, so your research is linking mindfulness and thriving. Can you tell me a little bit about what you found? Correct, yeah. So this is actually, it's the baseline data for a mindfulness-based intervention. But we wanted to see whether there were any correlations between the two constructs. So we expected to find something considering that mindfulness has been shown to positively impact well-being, psychological well-being, as well as performance. And there is some emerging evidence how it can help with learning in the classroom setting or learning sports 
skills as well as an increased sense of vitality or vitality-related constructs, outcomes, right? So people saying they have more energy towards activities that they value, goals that they've set uh, after completing a mindfulness intervention. So we saw some connections there for sure in the previous literature. And what we found with the baseline data was some small to moderate correlations between mindfulness and several of the thriving subscales. So the, the ones that really stick out the most here are sport learning, so your ability to learn new skills, you're feeling like you're progressing with what you're doing within that sport, but then also academic vitality. So we took the MTWS and adapted it to the sport and academic setting. Been commonly done for sport, not as much for academics. Yeah. And so I really thought this finding was pretty unique. If you're trying to get a school, this was a sport academy we were working with. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to get them to embed it within the school setting, what better way than to say, hey, they might have a little more energy, a little bit more passion for school yeah. if you use an intervention like this. So another way of getting that buy-in as well. Exactly, get the buy-in. Yeah. So, so loads of sort of benefits of, of mindfulness, and I guess the next stage is a sort of intervention study, right? Yeah, so we did a eight-week intervention, essentially using the Headspace Guide to Meditation, the Netflix series. Yeah. So they watched one episode a week in their health class, and then we had processing questions that the health teacher would lead them through. How did that mindfulness meditation feel in your body? Did anything come up for you? What sort of insights, lessons learned, takeaways did you have from that? So there was a little bit of a qualitative portion to it as well. Uh, and the athletes did report, you know, like feeling calmer, kind of the things you would expect, but also like I'm learning how to use my breath to ground myself, yeah. being able to kind of separate what I'm going on throughout the day. So kind of like diffusion in a way, not getting caught up with their thoughts or their mood, but being able to be intentional with what they're doing. And after the eight-week intervention, we actually did see a significant improvement in academic vitality. Yeah. So it wasn't just the correlation at baseline, yeah. but also an actual real improvement over time. Awesome, fantastic. Well, Chip, thank you very much for sharing your research. Uh, yeah. Again, just exploring some of the benefits of mindfulness. So, thank yeah. you. Yeah, thank you. So this is the 80% Mental Podcast and I'm here with Ashley Sampson from California State University in Northridge. Ashley, how's your conference experience so far? It has been absolutely wonderful. Um, I realized as I was on the plane here that the last time I got to be around all of my colleagues was the 2019 conference in Portland. Yeah. So it's been a long time coming. Yeah, same um, here. Obviously we've been you know, meeting virtually but it's not quite the same as the energy that you get from being in the room with everybody. Um, and it certainly, I feel like for me, has, you know, reinvigorated me and, you know, reestablished some connections, new connections, opportunities, new learnings. So for me, it's always like a, a re-energizing for my field. And I go home with all these millions of research ideas and new contacts and, you know, excited to hit the ground running. Yeah, awesome. So you talked about new learnings, kind of things that you pick up. What have you picked up in the first two, two days, three days? Where are we? Day three. Yeah. What, yeah. Have you, what have you picked up so far? What kind of nuggets um, and bits of I wisdom? I think for me, a lot of my current, um, not so much research work, but just overall professional practice work has been a lot on self-education in the, what do they say, D-E-I-B-J space now. We've added new letters to it. <laughs> Um, so that's, that's something new I learned, right? What, what, what is that? So, so it's the diversity, diversity, equity, inclusion, inclusion, and then yeah. belonging and justice. Oh, okay. So right. see, I learned something new like an hour ago. <laughs> um, and so sitting in on a lot of the diversity lectures and really just 
continuing to educate myself on you know what are new terms that I'm not used to or that I haven't learned about yet what are different ways to you know go about whatever things might be coming up that might be sensitive or and or controversial topics um, and so trying to really just further educate myself and so I feel like that's been a really fun part of this conference um, I think you know, sitting in on one of the ethics continuing education things. I think, you know, I don't know if it's like a new learning, but just the further validation that like we're all trying to figure things out. And the way that we figure it out is just by being honest and open and vulnerable that we don't know the answers and reaching out to each other who do know the answers. Because sometimes you can feel like I'm supposed to know all these things. I have all <laughs> these titles and I don't know what I'm doing sometimes. And so it's nice to be able to hear some of like the leaders in the field say that. And you're like, oh, okay, it's okay. Like they'll figure it out too. You know, so I think that's just, it's just things like that. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily say it's been like new research facts, but just new ways of approaching the things that I'm doing, you know, as I try to continually grow as a practitioner and a researcher and an educator and all the other hats that we wear. Well, Ashley, thank you very much for speaking to me. Yeah, you're most welcome. Um, so my name is Juato, and I'm originally from Pennsylvania, um, and now I'm in Bradenton, Florida with IMG Academy. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming to speak to me. Of um, course. So is this your first ASP conference? Yes, this is my first in-person oh, ASP okay. conference. I went to the one virtually last year, um, and then I've gone to some virtual regional ones as well. Yeah, so how have you found it so far in Fort Worth? I've really enjoyed it. Um, I was actually just talking to um, someone from my cohort that I graduated with who is not here, um, and I was just saying that I... Our class was so affected by COVID that this our second years that are were our first years when we were second years yeah. are here, and I think this is so great for them that they were able to come and like connect with people. Yeah. And it just also I'm happy for them, but it also means that we also missed out on this important like yeah. networking and connection making. Um, so I've really enjoyed it. Wish I had last year, but I'm also just grateful <laughs> that I got it this year as well. Okay, so we're on the the last day, Saturday. Yes. What have you um, What have you taken? So if there's like a piece of research that you've seen, or mm. some applied techniques, or, or kind of applied learnings, like what's what stood out to you so far? Oh man, I feel like I've been sitting in so many workshops. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like the one that was most recent to me. Um, was the, I don't know if I'm going to say their name right, but Ultier, mm -hmm. like, okay. um, wonderful, powerful women, um, and we were talking about how they have their three ways that they go about um, talking with their clients, but I really like the way that they address things with their athletes, and I feel like that's something I'm going to take away and like go into my own practice and um, with my students at IMG and like work on it with them um, using a different way of you know, I was taught one way in grad school, but now I'm out here in the world where there's hundreds, if not thousands of professionals who do a completely different way than what I learned in grad school. So I'm only five months out from grad school, so I'm very excited <laughs> to um, apply more things. All right, thank you so much for speaking to me. I'll thank you so much. I can't wait to listen. You're okay. amazing. Go get your pictures taken. <laughs> my name's Duncan Simpson. I'm a my role is I'm a director of personal development at IMG Academy, which is in uh, Bradenton, Florida. Awesome. So um, thanks for speaking to me, Duncan. Um, how are you enjoying the conference so far? Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. I've It's been long. I've been here <laughs> since Sunday, so um, I'm lucky enough to serve on the e-board. So I came in early, did e-board stuff, strategic planning, and then the conference started. So day one, had to present or got to present, very fortunate, and then... Um, yeah, I've been in and out, lots of sessions, lots of variety, trying to pick on topics that I'm not as um, familiar with or not 
areas that I probably need to upskill in. Yeah. So that's where I've tried to target my focus of, as opposed to things that I know about. Right. So what were you presenting on? We were presenting on um, communities of practice with coaches. So okay. instead of us, quote unquote, being the experts in the room in terms of coach education, it's really how do we how do we center the coach as the expert and then facilitate that and create a create a community of practice whereby they really drive the content and we facilitate it. So we've been doing that at IMG mm-hmm. and we just shared kind of the mechanisms and the processes, how we do that and just, you know, gave those ideas to yeah. to the audience. Okay. Well, I might catch up with you about that another time. Yeah. Kind of really relevant to the stuff. So yeah, no, it was, it was enjoyable. I think uh, hopefully people took a few things away from it. And it, yeah. I was joking because it was so easy for us to do because it was literally this is what we've been doing we're not it wasn't conceptual or theoretical it was just like hey this is what we're doing this is what we found that works these are our challenges you know you can connect the dots take take what (laughs) might work for you or might not so it was very easy to plan for and very easy to deliver um so those are kind of the best presentations yeah yeah. (laughs) so just to kind of stick with that for a minute what were some of the um like if you could offer any quick tips for working with cultures and developing those communities of practice, like what kind of things would you would you recommend? Yeah, we, we've always found when you try to um, center coach education as something that happens to them, then it always falls flat in the face. That when you come in as the expert and yeah. you provide them the information, so what we do is put them at the center, try and create what are the questions you'd like to have answered so we go through a process where we we kind of do an anonymous um, text message um, solicit questions they respond we curate them and then we'll say okay we'll bring up okay we're going to talk about feedback this was your question in around feedback no one knows who no one knows who solicited the question Uh and therefore it's uh we create you know a, a safe environment for them to share and then we ask them but obviously where we're fully aware of what the topic is and then we obviously build resources around it and we'll facilitate the conversation and then sometimes you know if we've observed something that needs to address we'll uh we'll we'll create our own questions but the coaches think it's coming from them and we make it uh you know we start we started with really small numbers so going to the directors and said which of your coaches said they want more coach education we'll target those people first and we create a little kind of scarcity and then coaches are like well, why are they meeting yeah so what you know and then coaches then have asked to join as opposed to this is something that's forced um and therefore it's people in the room that want to get better it's people in the room that are willing to listen and then to try and put things into practice um so then every week we kind of create those feedback loops and, and make sure hey are we actually being actionable and transferring some of the things we're talking about into into sport because if it, we're just making more knowledgeable coaches that's great but we want them to actually improve their own coaching and and as a as a byproduct obviously impact the athletes yeah it's, it's such a simple idea just asking the questions or getting coaches to ask the questions because you know i've done it myself when you, you drafted in to a room and you know introduced as the expert on this topic and you immediately lost the room already just on account of that so just a really simple idea soliciting those questions beforehand yeah um so in terms of kind of you know you talked about you upskilling and learning at the conference kind of doing things that you perhaps uh, don't know so much about rather than things that you already know about what are some of the um i guess pearls of wisdom whether it's a piece of research that stood out to you or like some sort of um applied practice tip or skill 
uh, what's, what stood out for you? I don't know if I have a tip or skill. I think one of the uh, one of the areas that I needed to better inform myself was in around uh, non-binary and, and transgender athletes and listen to uh, the presentation by Chris Moser. And I thought he did a phenomenal job of, of breaking down some of the you know, some of the language mm-hmm. in around transgender athletes, um, talked about some of the issues that he's had. And, you know, that was incredibly informative to me to listen from, uh, you know, a professional athlete, but his experiences and what can I take away from that to help inform my coaches that are working with the athletes on campus. So yeah. that's where it's been. I was, it, it was really, it was really powerful. Yeah. Awesome. And uh, obviously we're in Fort Worth. Have you got your cowboy hat and boots yet? <laughs> I did go to the uh, the largest honky tonk bar in the world oh, last night. Yeah, that was quite the experience. I've, uh, yeah, I mean, I went to school in Tennessee, so I've been to a few honky tonk bars, but that right. was a uh, that was a different level. But yeah, I haven't broke out my cowboy hat yet. Okay. Uh, Duncan, thanks so much for speaking to me. I really appreciate it. No, I really appreciate everything you do and love the podcast. So thank you. Awesome. Well, we'll get you on soon. Like okay. <laughs> Cheers, mate. So this is the 80% Mental Podcast and I am live at the Association of Applied Sports Psychology Conference uh, and I'm just scoping out some of the latest research that's going on in the field of sport and performance psychology and I'm here with uh, Dr. Amber Shepard from uh, Texas A&M and Amber, can you just tell us a little bit about the research that you're presenting here? Yeah, Um, it's actually Texas A&M University Kingsville, two different institutions, but that's okay. Um, Yeah, so this particular project was actually, uh, the idea came from one of my students a couple years ago. He did a correlational study, very simple study, uh, and he was looking at the relationship between stress mindset and burnout in college student-athletes and actually did find a significant relationship in that, generally speaking, college student-athletes who had more of a debilitating mindset when it came to stress actually reported higher burnout symptoms. So we thought it was interesting, and his next step was to look at, well, what are the, the current burnout interventions, what do they look like, and can we somehow integrate this new idea? Mm. And while the burnout interventions in the literature have been effective, generally speaking, they're season long, and they require some sort of trained professional. So the idea of, is it accessible for kind of the average coach or um, high school level individual came into question. So we decided to test if a stress mindset intervention, which is actually pretty simple to do, um, ours consisted of three two minute videos, and then some reflection questions just to get participants to, uh, for example, consider a time where they experienced stress and um, uh, had some positive outcomes come from it. And um, just that intervention itself, and we were looking to see if that could actually impact burnout symptoms in a sample of college athletes, and it did. So it actually reduced um, on all of the burnout scales, um, as well as the total uh, burnout score um, in our intervention group compared to the, the control group. Okay, awesome. So if you had some kind of practical recommendations for people working with student athletes, uh, thinking about different types of interventions, what was your sort of practical recommendations be? So the big piece here was the fact that this is something that, again, is really accessible. And so people that don't have the resources or schools that don't have the resources, this is something that 
can actually have an impact on burnout. And obviously, we've seen a huge increase in burnout, not just in student athletes, but across the board since the start of the pandemic. So the idea that something that's pretty easy to implement and pretty feasible actually did have an impact. Okay, awesome. I think it can be a benefit to a lot of people then. So uh, thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. My name is Saray Virgo. I'm currently a graduate student at UNT Dallas in clinical mental health counseling. Hi, my name is Madison Wilson. I am also currently a grad student in the clinical mental health counseling program at the University of Texas at Tyler. Okay, well, thank you both so much for coming to speak to me. Really appreciate it. Um, obviously, we're here at the ASP conference. It's the last day. Um, how, you, how have you found the conference so far? Um, it's been an amazing experience. I think that Um, me coming into the conference or now leaving the conference I have so much more confidence with myself in the field and the navigation that from everything that I've been learning so it's been amazing what what is it that's kind of given you that confidence then Um, I think just the support and just knowing that kind of we're all in this together Um, everybody is here trying to obviously do the same exact thing but um, yeah I, I know the process is hard and it's just been it's just been nice to know that everyone's in the same position and wants to give that same support. Awesome. And Madison, what about you? What have you taken from the conference so far? What have you enjoyed? Yeah, I was super, super, super excited to, to come to the conference. Is this um, your first one? It is my first okay. one. And driving up here, I stayed in Dallas. I had like a 40-minute drive to come up here. And as I was getting closer, I started getting a little bit more nervous <laughs> because I was like, holy crap, there's going to be a lot of people here that are doing the same thing, similar to what Saray said, like, am I qualified? Like, all of those little doubts started coming into my head. Like, everybody else is doing all these things. Like, what am I even doing? I'm not even in, like, a support psychology field. I'm kind of taking a different path. And so I really was coming here to explore that path and see, like, how I could make it into this field. Um, And also, I learned so much about different techniques and um, different processes to be able to get into this field and I did find out that yes I am what I'm doing right now is enough and I'm doing good work and um, there is a place for me in this field awesome that, I always look at imposter syndrome as something that's it's not it's not you as the individual it's like the environment that you're in yeah. that creates that for you absolutely so yeah it's great that kind of the conference has brought that out a little bit and kind of a little bit more confident about being in this space, you know? Yeah, and like Suri said, everybody's been super supportive, um, especially the people that look like us. We've had that meeting with everybody, and it was just so powerful and wonderful, and just to see how much support that everybody's giving, like um, wanting us to reach out, wanting to help so much, where... In the past, we've reached out and like gotten no responses. Yeah. And so now it's more comforting to know that, hey, if I do reach out, I'm actually going to get some responses. And um, just they're wanting to better the field, and they're going to do that through us, yeah. the young people coming up. Yeah. I've spoken to quite a few people who've said sort of similar thing that you know the the real learning takes place when you're bold enough to reach out to people and bold enough to kind of put yourself out there a little bit. Have you found that as well? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think the networking process here has been uh, something that makes a huge difference for a lot of people, um, especially for me. Just like Madison said, like 
reaching out to people, people trying to don't answer emails. So like being here in this space where people are so supportive and wanting to give out their information and they're honestly telling you like, if you need anything, I'm here for you. Like reach out if you need any connections, like things like that. So that's been super helpful. And another aspect that has brought the confidence part of it. So yeah, being here and being able to network and uh, meet a lot of people has been something that has been great. Awesome. And Soraya, is there, is there one thing that maybe jumped out to you that you like a, a piece of research you've seen or uh, some sort of applied learning, applied technique, something that's jumped out at you that you thought, oh, I'm, I'm having that? Um, I really have been liking the trauma-related stuff. Um, yeah. I think that's something that um, is obviously big in the field, but something that people don't really talk about as much and how much that affects the performance part of it and so I feel like that's a, um, a part of the field that I'm kind of interested in kind of like learning more about. Awesome. And Madison what about you? Is there one thing that's really jumped out at you? I think it's the the panels and the conversations around resiliency. Um, I guess being a former athlete I played in college and what, was, you know, what was your sport? Basketball. Oh, cool. Awesome. Yeah. Um, the idea of being resilient is a trait that you have, similar yeah. like mental toughness. It's something you either have or you don't, and you have to have it. Okay. Whereas here, I've gained a new perspective that resiliency is not just a trait. Either you do, you don't, you don't have it. It's more like on a spectrum of you either have a lot of it at one point, one point in time, or you may have not a lot of it. And how do you become more consistent with having it? And it's also dependent on context. Um, so it could be, you know, the context of, like, environment or the challenge or your skill level. Yeah. It's all dependent and interrelated. But no matter what, you still are resilient. You still have resiliency in you. you just got to bring it out. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for coming over and taking the time to speak to me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. We love that. Thank you. <laughs> My name is Christian Harris. I'm originally from North Carolina, but I currently attend the University of Denver. Okay, Christian. So, um, I, I recently recorded a, a podcast episode with Kit Holder, who's the first soloist for the Royal uh, Ballet Birmingham, uh, and Dr. Sarah Norden Bates, who's a, a kind of world-leading expert on the psychology of dance. So, your poster really caught my eye. Um, the performance psychology and the performing arts. Mm -hmm. So can you tell me a little bit about your uh, research and what you did and maybe what you found? Yeah, um, I'll try to make it brief, but uh, <laughs> for the most part, I'll say that we established the placement first by uh, having uh, one part of our team being a former dancer, having that experience as a dancer, yeah. she connected with her artistic director at her former, former conservatory uh -huh. and she said, I really want to work with this population because I know it's underserved because I worked in it myself. Yeah. But the issue was that this was during heavy COVID times. And because it was during heavy COVID times, um, a lot of those sessions were on Zoom. And actually the entire, the entire thing was on Zoom, unfortunately, mm -hmm. because of COVID. Um, so, but for a lot of those initial sessions, you know, they're learning from their second years at the time. And what they were learning were, you know, basic principles of like how you form a session. You only have 30 minutes with the with the dancer, so what we should do is just have an introduction. We should then have um, a brief period of psychoeducation, and then after we have that psychoeducation, we'll have an intervention. After the intervention, we'll have processing questions. So this is about how you might implement psychology with that population, right? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. But 
um, during those initial sessions, what we realized was was that there was a lot of disengagement using that format. Yeah. That format did not work for them because when it comes to the dancers, there's an issue of authority. And the issue of authority is that like they typically see authoritative figures as someone to kind of be subservient to, mm-hmm. kind of to answer the questions and then kind of keep it moving. Um, so what we realized is that, you know, when you have that authoritative, uh, that hierarchy, you have to adjust something because disengagement does not do anything for either party. Yeah. All it does is uh, basically both of you, both, both sides waste their time because neither of them are getting anything out of it. Mm-hmm. So what we did was we adjusted the format. And when I say adjust the format, I mean, instead of having just psycho ed and then going into intervention, we allow the dancers to have that space for themselves and kind of get whatever they want to get out of it. Mm-hmm. So we asked them like, hey, how are you doing today? We meet them where they at, where they are at. Yeah. Say like, hey, like, yeah, how are you doing today? Like, you know, just reassure them that if they want to use these session, that session time to just like kind of zone out and just be themselves or if they need to just log off or turn their camera off, they can do that. But just really showing them that we are there for them. We wanted to present our authentic self. We don't want to present ourselves as an authoritative figure because when you do that, like I said, both parties waste their time. So you're almost giving them a space that they can use and kind of saying, okay, well, let's figure this out together as we go, like how we might use it. Exactly. Having that open format of just a... just saying like hey like what do you need right now yeah you know talking to them like they are a person because if you think about it um i don't want to speak for the entire population but um for some of the dancers that we were around those authoritative figures really beat them down in terms of like their self-esteem and the way that they looked at each other and things like that they did not really have that cohesion amongst each other and i understand that because it is an individual performance at the end of the day but at the same time they are around it's a conservatory so they're around people who are doing the exact same thing as they are so that competition is there so um one of the things that we did was break down that authoritative uh hierarchy and the second thing we did was break them into small groups having sessions where you have half of the group meet for 30 minutes and then have the other half meet for 30 minutes and then going even further than that and breaking them down into even smaller sessions by having breakout rooms mm-hmm. so like i said this is all on zoom so when you have those breakout rooms and you have one person who's meeting with six people the other person's meeting with four or five and another person meeting with four or five yeah. you see a lot more engagement you see cameras on you see them talking about things that are outside of dance sometimes and that's okay because for a lot of them dance is their life so when you can take them out of those spaces and have them just talk about things like their summer vacation, yeah. we saw a lot more engagement. So are there any kind of, obviously that's, that was all done on Zoom because of COVID, right? Mm-hmm. But we're sort of back doing a lot more face-to-face work now. So have you got any sort of recommendations or anything that you've learned from this study in terms of how you might deliver psychology with this, this group of, of athletes? Um, I think the biggest thing that I would present to my, uh, this form of athlete is I would present to them that my own vulnerability, that was my biggest thing, was just presenting my own vulnerability, telling them, hey, I'm coming from this space of a contact sport, and this is what I've done for 10 years. And I've actually, I know nothing about ballet. I show them that I don't, I have nothing, I have no connections to ballet, but I want to learn about it. And just like presenting that true, authentic, like passion for this, 
it brings out their own passion. I did I did a thing where I would um, ask them little small questions. I would do things like, uh, "Hey, like, tell me about ballet shoes. What do they look like?" And they would they would go off on little tangents, and they would just say like, "Oh, this is what they look like. They come in different sizes. They come in sometimes they can come in different colors. You have to break them in a certain type of way." Yeah. And we would just talk about that for ten to fifteen minutes, just because I was just very curious about like what their lifestyle was like because it was completely foreign to me but I fear that like for a lot of people who have a traditional sport psychology background and do not present that vulnerability they're just going to look at them as an authoritative figure and they're not really going to get much out of it but when you can present that vulnerability and you show them like hey I'm really here for you and you reassure them that like they can use this time for whatever they want you present them with certain questions it strikes up different type of tangents and different type of conversations, and you can all lead it back to a psychological skill if you so choose. But there's multiple ways around it. You don't have to do it the traditional way. And that's what we found is that when you do things a little bit differently and you show them that you like truly are there for you know to support them, they respond awesome. positively. Awesome. Well, I, I think there's a lot of lessons in there for general kind of delivery of sports psychology, like avoiding that expert trap and showing that genuine interest okay like you're the athlete this is your sport you're the expert here yeah. well you tell me about it but i love hearing that you know you doing that gave them the opportunity to really come out and be enthusiastic yeah. and, and kind of talk with a little bit of life about what they're doing so. it was it was really a rewarding experience and i'll, I'll take yeah. it even a step further um just by saying this that um, for instance, we had to play around with certain things. This was a lot of trial by error because for sports psychology, there are not a lot of resources that are dedicated specifically to the performing arts. So for us, like we played around with um, breaking down into you know smaller groups, like doing parent-faculty sessions specifically because they brought up how they couldn't communicate with their parents, so they felt like they couldn't communicate with them. Yeah. So we would dedicate sessions just to parents and faculty. If they wanted to come in, they could ask us any type of questions they wanted to about sports psych, about communication, about whatever topic we wanted to bring in. We broke it down even further and had um, sessions dedicated specifically to the seniors and the postgrads because for a lot of dancers, you know, if you're at the you know the latter half or not the latter half of your 20s but if you're in your early 20s sometimes that could be a cap for a lot of dancers like after that like it's either you go into summer intensives or an internship you either get signed by a company or you transition into college and that anxiety about the future is prevalent amongst seniors and postgrads but what we realize is that um a lot of the times some of these dancers just they just want to vent sometimes because they don't get a chance to vent because you know if you vent to somebody and that person takes it to the director that director could pull you from a performance because they have the final say so and if that happens then you're left mirroring on the sidelines you're left underneath somebody doing something potentially you think it could be like worse than what how you are doing it and that leaves you with your own thoughts so we had you know things that we would talk about with them like self-talk and things like that and um, it was just really rewarding to to talk to people about those things, like letting them vent at the same time, not really having a solution, just allowing them to say whatever they wanted. And it was beneficial for them. And they would come back the next session and say, I really did, I need that. And we appreciate that. Um, and I'll take it even one more step forward, <laughs> um, just for specifically for dances of color. Dances of color um, are prevalent, they, they are present within these formats and with, within these, uh, these fields, but they don't really see a lot of people who look like them. And we had 
we had a uh, dancer who um, always had his camera off. If you ask questions, he's you know he's you know very respectful, so he'll answer the question. But you know he'll give the answer and then that's it. And you know we played around with something where um, one of our team members you know put that person in a session with me someone who looks like him mm-hmm. and he turned his camera on wow struck up a conversation with him just about shoes because i was just like hey man like i see you have some uh something back there that i have like yeah, I, yeah. I love those shoes man those are cool and he was just like yeah like i like he was so passionate about like shoes he has a shoe collection he was so excited just to talk about something that um wasn't dance with somebody who looked like him so i think there's definitely moving forward in the future um, we need consultants of color because you have dancers of color and sometimes they don't want to talk to people who don't look like them yeah. but they want to talk to people somebody who kind of gets them a little bit more and it's just it's really powerful when you can make that break with somebody and you can tell that there was a genuine connection that was made there and I think that's something that will stick with me no, <laughs> for sure it will stick with me moving forward but I, I hope that it stuck with him as well yeah. awesome Christine thank you so much for talking to me really I appreciate, appreciate you awesome. thank you my name is Quincy Davis, um, originally from Colorado Springs, Colorado, I'm now residing in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, I have a master's in counseling. I work as a school counselor right now um, and just recently completed my EDD from UWS in sport and performance psychology, um, waiting for CNPC certification. Um, and yeah, just an early career professional, excited to uh, make an impact for student athletes. Awesome, fantastic. So how are you enjoying the conference so far? Uh, the conference has been amazing. This is my first one. Oh, is it? Um, I've attended the virtual ones, but first one in person. And yeah. It's been amazing to connect um, and just meet other professionals, learn from people who are, are well-versed in the field. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, my experience so far has been awesome. um, nothing short of amazing. Brilliant. It's, really, it's really different being in person yeah, isn't it, than, definitely. than online. You don't quite get the same, uh, right. same impact. Exactly. So what are some of the things that you've taken then? Like, what are some of the kind of key things that have really stood out to you? Yeah, um, there have been many different things. Um, I've tried to go to different workshops. I've tried to go to lectures, panels. Um, and one thing that I have really learned from, I think, every single person is to, one, take chances and um, don't be afraid to really advocate for yourself in this field. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a professional and especially as a, a young black man, really try to make an impact and pave a way for um, other black professionals in the field. Um, One of my favorite things was last night being amongst all of the um, black students and professionals and just hearing everybody's stories and different pathways. Um, That was just such a space. It was just such a great space to be a part of. And so um, many different things about the conference that I've learned, and I, I kind of got to sit back, sit down, and unpack a lot of the different stuff that I've yeah, learned. Sure. <laughs> but um, it has been, like I said, it's been amazing. Yeah. But this, this space you were talking about last night, because I was there as well, it was just—it's really difficult to explain. Yeah. Like what that's like to be in the room, and you know, I put something on Twitter about the, the energy in the room. Yes. It's, it's different energy, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. Hundred percent. Like, in I didn't even. And it's weird because you go to these different, um, you go to different lectures and you're in different rooms and you don't see as many people of color in those rooms, right? You might be maybe one of, you know, four or five in the room and we get in that room last night and I, there had to be upwards of 60 people in that room. Uh, Um, And so it was just amazing to be a part of. And like I said, just hear everybody's educational background and everybody's story. Um, Yeah, it was very powerful. 
that awesome. So what are you what are you going to go back to do after the conference then? What are you going to kind of take into your own practice or what are you going to go and find out more about? Yeah, so right now I'm really in the in the job search um, in the job search process. Um, and so really just taking a lot of the material that I've learned um, and, and, and using it in a way that whether I get you know, in a, a chance at a, at a collegiate level, whether I'm working in youth sport, whether I start my own business, like I'm just kind of all over the place right now. Um, but uh, like I said, just really trying to take as much of this information and using it to my benefit and to the benefit of athletes and, and really just trying to be a resource for athletes um, in any way that I can. Um, my hope is to, you know, try to some way become um, a resource for those in low SES, um, you know, areas, especially within the Minneapolis area, uh-huh. um, and, and especially in athletes in general, um, because I know that that resource isn't there. Um, mm-hmm. And many times, if you're if you're living in that, you don't know that there's you know mental performance coaches. You don't know that you can have access to something like that. So um, whether it be doing it for free um, or you know, I just really want to be able to give back um, to you know those student athletes in that way. That's, that's wonderful. That's lovely. Really, really lovely to hear. So, Quincy, thank you for awesome. taking the time to speak yes. to me. I really thank appreciate you. it. I'm a big fan. Thank you very much. <laughs> this is the 80% Mental Podcast, live from the ASP conference in Fort Worth, and I'm sitting here with Dr. Adam Naylor. Uh, Adam, thanks for coming to talk to me. <laughs> Absolutely, Peter. This is terrific. I'm so happy we get to sit down. Okay. Um, can you just tell us a, a, a real sort of brief uh, little bit about yourself, um, just for the listeners who, who may not know who you are? Yeah, a little bit about myself. Um, I'm a, I guess I'd just say I'm a dyed-in-the-wool sports psyker. Um, really, we're talking ASP. I remember my first conference, I think, was 1996 wow. and maybe San Diego. So this is the, the space I wanted to be in. This is the... I, I'm, born, bred, raised uh-huh. in this field, in this organization in some ways. Um, and currently, you know, I lead performance psychology for Deloitte, the global client services firm, and just, just have a family I adore. So was that enough about me? That's, that's, that's plenty, yeah, unless there's anything else you want to tell us. <laughs> you can get it out of me, you know. Okay. Um, so how are you enjoying the conference so far? It's Fort Worth, right? <laughs> you know, it's Fort Worth. I hadn't been to Fort Worth before. Yeah. Um, it's... So far, so good. I must say, now you just got a little bit of my history. So what, since 1996, it's tremendous to A, sit and talk to people like you that some people I've seen over the years and some people it's just great to get to, yeah. to know, frankly. And that that's phenomenal mm-hmm. for me, frankly. It, it gives me energy. I think we all leave and hopefully keep talking. Yeah. Um, and then we've got, man, we're coming out of COVID. It's like, I can't tell wow. you how many people. It's like, when's the last time I saw you? <laughs> yeah. When's the last time we did this? And that, that's actually kind of fun and energizing. So that's, it's been tremendous. Like colleagues and challenging each other is fun to me. Yeah. No, my, my first one was 2009. Nice. I think it was Salt Lake City. Um, <laughs> I missed that one. Oh. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it's been really nice coming every year. And like you say, when COVID hit and everything went online, it was just like, it just felt like such a shame to not see people that you've seen, you know. Yeah, right? And actually, I think the past two virtual conferences were, were okay, right, content-wise and whatnot. I yeah, think yeah. a lot of us figured out how to do the tech thing. Uh-huh. But all the, like we're seeing in the hallway here, it's it's tough to find the hallways <laughs> on Zoom. Yeah. You know, and that might be the best stuff sometimes. So um, what, what have you picked up from the conference then? It's, it's the last day now. Um, what, what are some of the things that have stood out for you? Gosh, what stood out? Um, 
I, I always have to give a shout out to this one because it was what I was arguably most looking forward to. So, um, so um, Megan Bartlett, she just actually did the keynote, but um, then there's Dr. Will Massey and Dr. Meredith Whitley, who friends, collaborators, colleagues of mine over time, they did a continuing ed on Thursday night about trauma-informed consulting. Okay. So to me that, a lot of people look at me and they hear that's what I got excited about because like, A, you're not a clinical psychologist, you're not dealing with spaces of trauma a lot. Mm. But when I come to these conferences, those are the things I go to because I'm gonna learn something I don't see every day and steal it. Yeah. And I just thought the piece on it about impacts of stress on learning, they did a tremendous job at laying out the science of it to the point where I'm always kind of working stuff in my head, knowing what's coming up in my life. What presentation do I have to do? Who do I have to plan something for? Yeah. I actually stole, not stole, wrong word. <laughs> It'll be well cited and you've already known I will give them credit all day long. How I will take that idea of stress's impact on learning in a, um, a workshop I have to run in a week and a half mm-hmm. with an audience that I, we never know what trauma is in an audience. I don't think there's gonna be any, that's my guess. Yeah. But this idea of stress and learning is the front of their caring because they, in our firm, coach people on how to go out and do proposals well in person. So like they're stressed because they're trying to help people win huge deals. Mm -hmm. The people are stressed because they're like, oh my God, there's millions, (laughs) billions on the line. And I was trying to figure out, I needed the science to my talk track because that's stylistically me. I I refuse Mm -hmm. to do a tips and tricks talk track there needs to be these roots when you're dealing with an elevated audience and it was it was i took a picture on my phone i was like that's it that's the slide thank you um so a i enjoyed it on that end again if it's worth digging around and looking at some of their stuff um i think just meredith and will's work they've taught me so much over the years as friends and uh, i don't exist in a youth sport trauma environment i just it's just not where I've been, mm-hmm. but it's really eye-opening and elevating and informing. So yeah. that, I can't praise that enough. Um, that was great. It was great to see kind of the, the brief interventions, the Bert Geiges talk, mm-hmm. A, cause like I'm nostalgic. Um, Bert was so important for so many of our learning. Yeah. Um, and I just thought it was lovely. I, I saw some colleagues and friends do some nice stuff there. I was like, that's great. So that's my, I don't know if that's a short or a long answer, you know? <laughs> it, no, but I mean, there's always something, isn't there? There's always something that stands out. The Bert Geiger's talk was on at the same time as mine, so I didn't That's right. Okay, so I knew. So, okay. So, I will own it. I have guilt. I'm like, I know you and I were going to try and catch up, and Shams was on your talk. Yeah. And I was really interested in your topic, and I was kind of doing, how do you just stand in the back of a room and slip out? Yeah, how do you, you stand don't. in the back of the room and slip out? And during the Bert Geiger's talk, Chelsea went on stage, and I know Chelsea, I've been working with her a little bit the last couple months, mm-hmm. and she's doing great. I was like, I got, I didn't get stuck. It was positive, <laughs> but I was supposed to, yeah. that's it. When you and I were talking, I'm like, what was I doing during that? <laughs> no, it's, it, that's so that's where we need the debrief for your talk. That's, yeah. that's why when you and I were walking over here, I was like, what, what was the little thing that came out of it? Because I needed the debrief. Yeah. So, um, you, before we started recording, you were talking about, um, your private practice and kind of how you got into that and how it developed. Oh, there's lots of, of students here at Aspen and, and lots of kind of students who listen to the podcast. I wonder if you've got any advice, um, words of wisdom for people who may be looking to, to start a private practice and kind of branch away wow. from, from academia. 
wow, it's funny, right? And it, it, that's actually a good question. Because sometimes the question is, how do I get involved in more applied work? Mm. Which is related and sometimes different because I've never thought, of, even when I was my own kind of enterprise, it just felt like a natural iteration. So if, if one digs up on bio, I was faculty at Boston University probably almost around 20 years before I stepped away. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think to get to that point for me, pride practice, I think, and maybe I will say three things. One, just ruthless curiosity, right? Because ruthless curiosity allowed me to always get a little bit better and iterate, mm -hmm. right? So that means maybe someone would buy my services, but I was, they'd always want more sounds so salesy, but go, wow, he brought it and a little bit out there. And the second time we saw him, there was a little bit of an addition to it. Mm -hmm. And the third time, it wasn't the canned talk. And that comes out of just being curious. Mm -hmm. um, my, my wife hates it. She's like, you could just say the same crap every time and they'd be happy. <laughs> like, that's why we need wives in our lives, right? I'm like, yeah, but I don't know if I'd have fun. She's like, but you put like three extra hours in before the basic workshop. I'm like, yeah, but that's fun. So I think there's that. Um, you said the word advice. I try and be slow to advice because all our paths are different and all of that course, we have. Yeah. But by saying that, but it almost relates to it is in this space, at least in my experience, the last... 20, 24, whatever we want to call it, whatever, however we want to date it. There's no one right path. Actually, it's like as bold as it sounds. Like I'm like, if someone tells you this is the path, run the hell away. Yeah. It is not. Um, and then I think the third piece, and this has come out of a lot of reflections around this conference. Um, people have been like, what's good, bad about that? What's going on? Don't be afraid to dive in and sit in the sciencey workshops people are like, oh, those aren't applied. Mm -hmm. I will argue those were the keys to me being a reasonably solid applied practitioner. Like mm -hmm. you just heard, I sat in a trauma-informed workshop. Yeah. And it's going, I've stolen something that I will use in the corporate workspace in a week. Like that doesn't exactly commute because it's like, oh, go to all the corporate talks. Go to all the how do you build a business talks. Yeah. I would avoid those like the plague. It's the underpinning science. Yeah, go, science like, you know, and build that path. I yeah. think it's, doesn't get fully respected in some ways. It's okay. like that, I still do that, right? Like, I don't have enough time in the day to read other people's work, but <laughs> I think that's where I'd land. Um, be brave, trust yourself every now and then. And um, it's not easy. It's scary as heck when you, when you step away from an organization or whatnot. Um, I, I waited a while, right? I always say, like, it was nice to have BU next to my name because it, early in my career, it made me an automatic expert. Yeah. Right? You show up in a room, it's like, Sam Neill from Boston University. And I was telling, I, I was, I had a little th talk I had to do today, and that made me instantly credible in ice hockey. Yeah. I didn't know anything about ice hockey at the time. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but it was like, the weird things that happen. So there was a real value to not running into solely doing my own thing quickly. Yeah. But I kept doing it. I kept loving it. Okay. Um, I, uh, I I chatted with Bob Weinberg the other day, and um, I asked <laughs> I asked him who would be on the Mount Rushmore of sports psychologists, and uh, Bob was very very hesitant to give me an answer to that question <laughs> for a number of reasons. Um, I, I won't ask you the same question, but I will say, if people listening, if you could recommend like a handful of people who you would say, go and read their work, go and listen to them speak, 
Wow. Who, who will be on that list? Well, I, I might duck this like Bob. <laughs> you know, like that was a really good move. I mean, um, I got, with Bob, I, it was limited to four. But, I mean, you can have as many people on this list as you want. So, so that's a problem. Like we we're probably time limited here because I will keep going because it's okay. like, what's like the OG? Like let's start like, okay, I don't know. No offense to Bob. He might make the Mount Rushmore. He might not. It's a really <laughs> close call. He should. Yeah. Um, and then I'd go like the next generation, the next generation. Like there's some of these amazing young practitioners. So the list would be long. Let's start there okay. who would one go read um try to think uh i don't know if it's i haven't i haven't been able to read his work recently because i've just uh, i've iterated there's i'm actually reading a lot outside of the sports psych space mm. to kind of add in around but i i know early in my career bruce abernathy mm-hmm. bruce abernathy's work i'm not sure i understood it for five years i read it and it was like motor development expertise like old school like really good tons of research on cricket mm-hmm. i'm american like cricket's a bug not a game I, i'm british and i don't understand yeah cricket, so. and it's like but i would always like it was really impactful actually yeah. so digging around on just even i remember not the Williamsburg conference that was actually 1996 Williamsburg Virginia he spoke I don't know if it was a presidential address or whatnot um he talked about expertise in a way we were talking about in the 90s so it wasn't it was before 10 years 10,000 hours had fully blown up and been been a product or whatever we want to call it these days right this is really interesting stuff and it really tied it in together. So I think Bruce Abernathy's work there was really influential on me. Um, okay. Let's see here. That's a good question. <laughs> um, I like the way that you're approaching it though, like generationally. Yeah. Like, and ah, now it's like, I, I, I don't want to go too far on that because <laughs> I feel like who am I going to leave out and offend? Like I've got so many wonderful students I got to teach over the years that I just still collaborate with and yeah. talk with. Um, well, you heard, two folks that have become friends over years like like Will Massey I'm not sure many people think of him as a sports psych guy because mm-hmm. he's great at re- understanding recess he's great at stress so I got to meet him so now I, somehow now that we're at ASP you go by conferences yeah right so <laughs> at the Atlanta conference whatever year that was uh, Chipper Jones's last game because I remember we were there and mm-hmm. you know they called him safe and he was out someone pulled that up like like the baseball game was ridiculous but I met Will there because I think Meredith probably introduced us cause she said we had to meet because he was working on um, a qualitative study a rigorous qualitative study with Barbara Meyer mm-hmm who I've gotten to know well since. So I think Barbara's, uh, I don't know if you say hidden gem, but Barbara's awesome, um, on mixed martial arts and self-regulation. And so Meredith, who knew me, said, um, you, you got to meet and talk to Will. Because Meredith knew, because Meredith was a former student, colleague, collaborator. She knew I was part of a UFC fight camp. Look at me, it's ridiculous. <laughs> like, I still laugh about that to the day. She's like, no, you've been neck deep. Like, I think at that time I was proud to say, like, my UFC record is 4-0, Meredith. <laughs> you know, and I haven't had to take a punch yet. And, you know, I sit in a cage and talk to people. And she's like, what is wrong in your crazy life? <laughs> but so I got to know Will through that. And we actually talked a lot on it. And I love research, but I'm not an R1 researcher, as you know, mm-hmm. I said earlier. So to me, there was, a, a, a privilege and a luxury to be the third author, the sounding board. Yeah. Like, he's like, here was the experience. Let's triangulate it better. 
And so I think what I learned through a lot of his work is it's deceptively diverse in its thinking, and it is always rigorous. And I think he'll say, I got that from Barbara because Barbara's my grad advisor. Um, and I think I would argue, and he'd laugh like, some of his rights are pretty tough reads because they're rigorous. Like, I learned more about qualitative research mm-hmm. in that one paper he and I were working together than ever before. Because be, before that, I was like, eh, qualitative research reads nice, a little fluffy. <laughs> and this thing got published, like, that's not fluffy. Yeah. Like, that was blood, <clears throat> blood, guts, and good stuff. So I think that sits there. I don't know. How long do you want me to go? I could riff all day. You know, we got to give the, the cap tip to Ken. Um, Ken, course, I, yeah. I have considered a, a good friend of the years. My first conference, I was told to meet him because I was actually undergrad, probably raised by a sports philosopher. Mm-hmm. And Ken's original days were in sports philosophy. Yeah, yeah. So I literally walked across the room. I, hey, I visited Drew Heinland says I was supposed to say hi. Right out of the gate, he gives me a hug. He goes, what are you doing this winter? What? Because he found out I lived in Connecticut. He goes, okay, come do a baseball workshop with me. Like, who is this guy and what's going on? (laughs) And the truth to any of the audience is I did not do a baseball workshop with Ken Revisa in the middle of my master's studies. I was his chauffeur. (laughs) I was his chauffeur. And I learned that Ken, Southern California, cool. He's actually a Connecticut boy. Like, I didn't know that, you know? So I really created a long, fast friendship where with Ken, it wasn't read his stuff or listen. It was the luxury of the after hours conversations and the challenging. I remember the day it was at the Nashville conference, whatever year that was, we're sitting up late at one night chatting. He looked at me and I was at a tennis academy then, setting up all their sports psych stuff. And he goes, what have you learned? What do you know about being better as a sports psych person? Like it was was a direct question, Mm. almost like aggressive. (laughs) I was like, this is the big time. And Ken Revis is putting you on the spot. So I was like, maybe, God, it must have been like 24 at that time. Uh-huh. And I was like, let's find the answer. So I think these great mentors behind the scenes too. So is that a long enough list? Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you, well, you've given us some really great names. And what, what I like about it is that some of them are more research oriented. Some of them are more applied practice oriented. Mm-hmm. But I think the thing that, or the lesson that comes from what you just said, for, for kind of maybe younger uh, academics or practitioners, is to reach out to people and make those connections and be bold and be brave and go and speak to people because that's where that's where the learning takes place, right? And that's where the development is. A thousand percent, right? Like this is it's a lot of kind people here, right? This is not a competition to see who gets the right job here. <laughs> when someone thinks that, I'm like, we're not going to make a better field. Mm. It's a really generous organization. Not always perfect, but none is. But it, it's generous if you're brave enough. Um, and... You know, again, I, I think it makes me feel like I'm old. I don't think I am. Like like you and I say, we're not old. I don't think so, Peter. I, I think I still think that I'm like 25. Yeah, we're, so. we're going to still pretend we're 25. Like ASP was found on a scholar-practitioner model. So I just don't believe you should be one or the other. Because if you are, you're not going to do, do great work. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to come and speak to me. No, thank you for chatting with me. Like, thank, I've learned so much it. before this. Never, no one heard all our talk before this, which was lovely, <laughs> and I learned so much from you, Peter. So thank you. All right, thank you. Thank you once again to everybody who I annoyed with a microphone in Texas. 
And thanks to you lot for listening. I hope you enjoyed hearing from some of the attendees at the ASP conference. And who knows, maybe I'll get to do the same thing again next year in Orlando. Hopefully with fewer travel issues, but that's maybe a story for another time. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at EPM Podcast or on Instagram at 80% Mental and go to the website 80%mental.com where you can listen to all of our episodes from series one, two, and three so far and subscribe so that you don't miss out on any future award-winning content. Thanks once again for listening and we'll see you next time. Well, I won't see you, will I? Because it's a, you know, it's a podcast. Mm-hmm.